We've been fighting a long time, and we have all lost so very much, so many loved ones gone. But you are not alone. There are pockets of resistance all around the planet. We are at the brink. You have no idea how important you are. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. By Steve Sensfidel and coming at you with another book review, this time on The Life of Venerable Louis DuPont. Not to be confused with Venerable Louis DuPont, Leo DuPont of the Holy Face of Jesus uh, fame and miracles on that. Uh, same name almost, different. This guy was actually a priest of a Jesuit order. And we're bringing in Colton Mar uh, Marx. The reason why is I think he edited, found the book, edited and it's now being published by Mediatrix Press. So, Colton, welcome to the program. Thank you. How you doing, man? I'm good. How are you? I'm well. Well, so, all right. How'd you find, how'd you stumble on this book? Was Louis DuPont, was he one of these guys that you had photos on the wall? Like, I got, did you know about him? How, how'd you find this? Well, so, the the interesting story is, um, so, Louis DuPont is actually the Anglicanized version of his name. Um his his real name is Luis de Puente. Um, he's a Spanish Jesuit from the mid 1500s, born in 1554. Uh, one day, I had gotten really into um, reading lives of what I call obscure holy people. So at St. Louis University, where I go to school, we have this very large theological library. And there's stacks upon stacks of lives of saints and autobiographies and biographies of all of these holy people and people of high sanctity and repute. And so I would just walk the stacks. And at one point, um, that's all I could get myself to read. Uh, the, these, these books on these lives of these holy people, their virtues and the works of their life were, were the books that I loved reading for spiritual reading, for fun, just, just all in general. And so at the time, I had had this massive book, The Life of Dom Bartholomew of the Martyrs, who was uh, the Archbishop of Braga. He was Luisa Granada's, um, one of his spiritual sons is a Dominican. He became the Archbishop of Braga, was a prominent father at the Council of Trent, um, and was just a man of very high repute and sanctity. Well, that book was huge. It was like 500 pages, and it was, you know, like eight inches big. Um, and so I needed a smaller book to carry around throughout the day. So I just, I just went through the stacks and randomly found this book right here, uh, which is the 1882 original copy of the life of Venerable Luis de Puente. And, um, from there I checked it out and soon after I didn't read Don Bartholomew of the Martyrs anymore, cause all I was reading was this. And so I read this for the first time. It only took me like a few weeks just because it's, it's it's really manageable and good to get through. And I was so edified by what I was reading. I was just cranking through it and soaking it all up. And I've returned to this book three or four times since then. Um, I read it one or I read it a time after, um, I think going into spring break, maybe it was of last year. 
And then I decided for fun, I would put together the most edifying passages of the book and put them into what I called the shorter life of the venerable. Um, and I, I had just made some copies of that on Lulu and it was fine, but I couldn't really share his life with anybody else because it, it just didn't follow. Like it wasn't good to read as a story because it was just all these passages. And so I think that my roommate got tired of me talking about him all the time. Um, and I'm always up to some sort of, you know, project with um, just making rosaries or trying to find ways to reprint books or whatnot. And so him and I, my friend Michael, we decided to start editing this book, taking from the PDF copy and doing all the copy edits and reformatting and everything. And that became our school project, if you may, um, for our extracurricular class of republishing the lives of obscure holy people. And so just kind of class, you got three credit hours for that. No, I, I don't know how many credit hours I got, but it took it took a fair amount of time. But it was like we were we were just totally in on this project. And so it was a lot of fun. And I didn't think anything would come of it, which is funny. Um, so I just kind of like reached out to Ryan because he does stuff like this all the time at Mediatrix Press. And so I thought it'd be a good idea. So I sent him an email. I sent him some passages and he was like, yeah, I think this would be great for souls. And so um, it ended up getting published. So it's been a great it's been a great joy because over the last two years, Lu Luis de Puente or Luis de Pont has truly become like a really dear and intimate spiritual father of mine. Um, and so I think that's the that's the key to reading this book is you're not reading it just to understand the history of this guy's life or to understand why I'm, you know, who this person is or where he came from or whatnot, or just gathering historical facts. I mean, you're really in many ways, because I, I believe fully that he's a part of the communion of saints in heaven. I pray to him as a saint. It's like, you know, if I believe he's in heaven, he's still very much alive, even more so alive than I am. And I see the way he lived his life, the virtues of his life. And I look at those and I start, you know, you start to cultivate an actual friendship with, with, you know, these saints. And so if there's anything to, to bring to the world through this book is like to, to, to begin to love him, to begin to understand him, to begin to cultivate kind of a, a, a friendship back and forth between you, know, you and the saint. And that's what the saints are for. They're for, they're for our edification, you know, they're, they're for our progression in the spiritual life, but our relationship with the saints don't just die when we finish the book and they don't just end when, you know, kind of we, we stop, you know, I guess acknowledging them continuously, you know, it's like these are continual relationships to build up that um, can be very edifying to the souls when we look at it through like I'm, I'm interacting with my heavenly friends and act, asking for their help and all things. So what what hooked you on him? What what we when you were reading it? What was something that just like pounded you in the face, going, "I got to keep reading about this guy"? What, what was like the first? What was the first first hook, really? So I think the main thing was um, how the book is written. It's written extremely well um, because it wasn't overbearing with historical facts or setting historical context or whatnot. It was it's it's very spiritual. It's very spiritually oriented. And even at some points, the author cuts himself off because he says, you know, some of these things aren't necessary for the historian to talk about and whatnot. So he's writing as a historian, but he's taking most of what he's writing about Luis de, de Pont 
from his own work um, and particularly from his own spiritual journal, his, his spiritual insights, his personal spiritual diary. And so you're just reading these passages that are extremely edifying. And then you read, you know, you, you essentially read the beginning of his life. He was born to two noble parents um, in Spain in 1554. And his father died very young. And like at the beginning of the book, the author says that it was clear from a very young age that God had God himself, you know, almighty God had become this man's singular father. Um, and in the way he had nourished, you know, his, his, his love for him and cherished him and bestowed upon him graces. But you also see kind of the, you know, it says early in the book that Luis would spend a lot of time on his knees in an obscure corner of the room praying until dawn. And then at dawn, he'd go to the neighboring church of the Dominicans to serve the first mass of the day. Um, and I think just it's just so edifying to, to read a lot of these things. And then you get to a certain point in his life um, where in the book it talks about his spiritual works. And then it stops the narrative cycle of the, the chronological narrative of his life and spends, you know, 10 chapters or so just on his virtues, each chapter dedicated to a specific virtue. So you have... Um, it begins off with his charity to God, his charity to, towards neighbor, um, faith and hope and confidence in God, his mortification, austerity, his prayer, you know, his his, his, his certain spe special, you know, charismatic gifts, as you will, prophecy, his ability to give direction in the confessional. And, and then it ends with his death. And I just think um, it's so edifying because I had just read books like The Spiritual or The Sinner's Guide and... Uh, spiritual combat by you know Luisa Granada and Tom Scapoli, and I'm reading all these treatises. I've read this treatise by Thomas Aquinas on perfection, where he says that most people speak about perfection but don't actually know what that means. Um, and so I read all of these treatises on virtue and perfection and whatnot, but have never, or in one way or another, haven't read anything more compelling other than the Gospels themselves. Um, than this book in my own life about how those are lived to perfection, how virtue is lived to perfection. And I think that's something that just caught me from the get-go. It's like, I want to be more virtuous and holy, and I want to live a life in intimate union with Christ. And though, you know, um, though Luis de Puente was obviously very favored with graces, he very much so labored in the Lord's vineyard. You know, it talks about in the book how he had progressed in certain ways and certain knowledges of things, um, His one of which being his understanding of suffering, like how could someone possibly suffer with so much resignation um, until it came a certain point in his life where he started to understand that because he started living it and God gave him the graces to do such a thing. But I just think... Um, Though he achieves, you know, great levels of sanctity that can be sometimes hard for us to comprehend, I think the pass, the the pathway that he takes, uh, and the way in which it's presented in the book, by means of virtue and continuously and arduously practicing and laboring for virtue in our lives, trying to live the virtues and what that looks like, it's. I mean, in in many ways, this book is like a spiritual treatise on virtue but with a living person 
that we can have a living relationship with. And that's what's that's what's really beautiful about it. What's one of your stories that you got out of it? Like a story sells. So like if I'm reading a book, I'm going up to the wife. Hey, you got to hear this. No, I think one of one of the coolest stories of Luis de Puente's life is early in his life when he was 19. He had at this point become a fairly renowned intellect um, amongst his community in Valladolid where he was living. Um, and at the time he was he was in theology under the Dominicans at um, the University of, or the College of St. Gregory, and then would also frequent the um, Jesuit College of St. Ambrose and hear lectures from um, Suarez, Francisco Suarez, and um, this other priest. He would hear his sermons named Gutierrez. And at this point, Luis had not made a specific decision as to his state in life. He had had an older sister who joined the Dominicans, um, but he was the eldest son of the family um, and was clearly gifted with these high graces of prayer, clearly arduously worked for it, um, but had not yet determined where his life was going to go or where God was calling him. And so you see this beautiful story unfold of how he receives his vocation. And it's all through the Immaculate Virgin, um, which Luis de Ponte was born in 1554. So this is hundreds of years before this becomes a dogma of the church, but still a very hot, hotly debated issue, especially with the Jesuits as they, they become kind of pit bulls, if you will, of promoting that, that belief in the Immaculate Conception. Well, Luis had always held this belief in the Immaculate Conception very tenderly and dearly in his heart. It was it was something that um, he considered often, and he he loved our Immaculate Virgin with great with great you know piety and ardor. And one day, um, in his nineteenth year, I think he begins to doubt um, in his heart the belief in the Immaculate Conception. Is it really real? Like I don't know, whatnot. And um, at that point, it says that the vein. This is, I think this is the exact word he says. The vein of devotion was dried up in his soul. And so he begins to doubt the belief in the Immaculate Conception. Our Lady strips away any sense of spiritual consolation and whatnot from him, any sense of the presence of God from him. And this is the first time he's experienced anything that intense. And so he's, he goes into this like mass confusion and he, he starts talking to people about it and consulting people on it and praying through it. And he goes through this for a few months. Like this wasn't just like a few days and done as, you know, I like to think that when I go through any sort of spiritual dryness or aridity, it can be three days or four days and I'm, and it's over. And then it goes any longer than that. I start asking if God's abandoned me and I think he's abandoned me and he's left me. Well, you know, venerable Luis perseveres through this through months and eventually comes to the conclusion that this is because he began to doubt the Immaculate Conception. And Our Lady had clearly ordained him for, for a total consecration of himself to her. And so he, he repairs to the altar of Our Lady. He makes amends um, to never and makes a vow to never doubt the belief in the Immaculate Conception again. Well, you think it would end there. The difficulty is, since he was one of the brightest minds in the town, they had asked him to take part in a scholastic disputation on the Immaculate Conception. 
And the scholastic disputation was fairly neutral. And so he was given the side to argue against the Immaculate Conception. So whereas it says in the book that he had bound his heart to Our Lady and her Immaculate Conception, he had not so bound his tongue. So he walks into the lecture room to begin speaking about the Immaculate Conception and is soon zapped of all of the knowledge in his head regarding the matters and the arguments against the Immaculate Conception. So in his embarrassment, he has to leave the scholastic disputation because he can't provide any reasons because he has none in his head. I mean, he's totally dried up. So then he goes back to the same altar of Our Lady, repairs with many tears and whatnot, and makes a vow never again in word, thought, deed, or with, with any strength in his whole being to ever again doubt or speak against the Immaculate Conception. Now, in this point, he was also... Um, in his vocational discernment, thoroughly he had a thorough repugnance for becoming a Jesuit. Um, and he, he thought the order was too new. It, it was facing persecution everywhere. Like, and I don't know, it seems a little iffy. Well, um, because of this instance with the Immaculate Conception, Luis de Puente starts to gain a certain favor, especially with some Jesuits that have been present in his life, like Suarez and Gutierrez. Um, he, he began to gain a certain favor for them and realized that this was the order he was indeed called to join. Um, and then experiences months of Satan seeing, Satan foreseeing the, um, the great works that would be done through him in the society. And so Satan like arduously attacks him for the next few months on like trying to convince him that he would be miserable. And it wasn't until he met with Balthazar Alvarez, who was the esteemed director of Teresa of Avila, that he was he was kind of cleared of all of that and consoled and, you know, pursued his life as a, as a very holy Jesuit um, and a man of high sanctity. And so, but it was through the, Immac the Immaculata, the Immaculate Conception, um, that he found his vocation and started to receive kind of the greater depths and lights of prayer and whatnot. Um, I think an another well, well, we can. I'll, I'll let you talk for a second. No, no, no. I was going to say, go ahead. You got another story. Uh, it's I'm good with story time. No, yeah, we 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 love story time. Um, I'm trying to think because there's just so many stories throughout the life, and the beauty of them is they're they're so personal, especially when it begins to talk about um, the way in which he interacts with those who he has care over, um, and how he. I mean, he knew. He was so spiritually wise that he knew kind of exactly what to say in any given moment to to clear up any of the confusion of, of his son's spiritual sons and, and whatnot. But there's this one one interesting story where um, he was confused as to what spirit, like into the discernment of spirits of like where are certain things coming from? Are they from God? Are they from Satan and whatnot? And he has this interaction with our Lord where our Lord says, well, Luis, if, if you see a, a, um, a branch that is full of fruit, delicious fruit, you know, what do you do? He says, well, I eat the fruit and I throw away the branch. He says, okay, so if you see that there is clear fruit um, and there are clearly things that are good and holy, you know, he's like, he's like, don't question what spirit they come from. If they've, if they've provided grace and peace to your soul, they've come from God. But that, that's just a cute little story about the, um, that, that branch specifically. Um, 
but I do think there's there's just so much to gain from Luis in matters of um, theology and the understanding of virtue that I'll read a passage on, this is from the chapter on his faith and confidence in God, um, because what's interesting is his, his theology, his spirituality is so sublime, but it's so simple. I mean, obviously, that, that's, that's what sublime spirituality and mystical understanding boils down to is um, like just a simple, all-encompassing gaze and love upon God. Um, but, but he says one day, and remember, this book is taking a lot from his own personal writings, from his personal journals and personal insights, which actually I did find a book that includes all of those in the library. And that's got to be a next project to type up is this one, because that this is actually because what's funny is like I'm wondering where are all these coming from, like the spiritual diary must have been burnt in some fire somewhere and we've lost it. And the only trace we have of it are in this uh you have this to be paying book attention to find those books because there's no pretty covers it's just plain and no you get it yeah it's i i spend a lot of time running the stacks at school it's it's a lot of fun it's one of my pastimes i'll walk out with like nine or ten books and i won't read any of them but i'll just look through them um it's just a lot of fun to see them but it's like th this one was interesting because it wasn't under his name at all you know it was some it was a it was a collection of different spiritual writings from different Jesuits and the first like 150 pages are his personal <laughs> spiritual writings that I'm reading about in this book. But anyway, so it talks about being, so this is from his writings, um, being one day discouraged when asking great things of God, because I saw myself so miserable. I was suddenly struck with these words of the Royal prophet. My soul hath fainted after thy salvation. And in thy word, I have hoped exceeding much. Reflecting on these words, it occurred to me that I may hope for greater things from God than these, which, considering my weakness, I could not venture to ask. So long as my confidence rests on the infinite mercy of God and the infinite merits of his Son. And thus it is I, understanding the expression, hoped exceeding much. Hence I may hope for an intimate union and familiar intercourse with his divine majesty and other similar gifts, notwithstanding all my own demerits. With this feeling, I took great courage to ask for everything without the slightest fear, because if I truly hope in him and have recourse to his mercy, all my sins and miseries are but as an atom, which cannot hinder the light of the sun, neither could I find any cause of vainglory if our Lord should hear my petitions, and even grant me more than I ask, because all springs from his liberality and mercy, and I am unworthy of it all. With this reflection, then, I ventured to say to God, create a clean heart in me, O God, a humble heart, a meek heart, an obedient heart, a temperate heart, seeing that he who creates, creates out of nothing and has no need of any foregoing merits or dispositions in the subject. And then it goes on to continue and says about, about Venerable Louis, he endeavored to instill the same confidence into all those under his care. When he met with any timid or pusillanimous souls, who were terrified at the sight of their past sins, or who dreaded the difficulties to be encountered in the service of God, or were too sensitive and unwilling to suffer for Jesus Christ, he would say to them, quote, what are you afraid of? Is it because your sins are many and great? Is it not the divine mercy infinitely greater? Has not Jesus Christ shed all his blood for you? Has he not promised pardon to whoever asked it with humility of heart? 
you must confide in him. Why then are you alarmed at trifles? Have you to fight single-handed against hell? Is not God with you? And if God be with us, who shall stand against us? Come, come, generous soul, advance to the combat. Wherefore, too, are you so delicate, so tender? Oh, if you but knew what a precious thing it is to suffer willingly for Jesus. He goes before you carrying his cross, and do not doubt, but he will sweeten all the bitterness of your sufferings. And it says that with holy words as those, you know, those who would hear these things would, would never be, you know, kind of um, timid in the practice of spirituality, listening to him. Did you find the Goodyear quote or was that something that uh, found later? But I mean, I had found that, but Ryan, I think Ryan found the Goodyear quote. Um, but I think, I think there's a lot to be unpacked there about him being to mystical theology, what Aquinas was to, to, you know, um, I forget what the exact quote was, but do you have it pulled up? For my Spanish-speaking people, uh, made use of all the great authors before him. In some sense, it might be said that what St. Thomas Aquinas was to dogmatic theology, that he was to mystical theology. And what the Summa Theologica did for scholasticism, that the spiritual guide has done for mysticism. That's Alvin Goodier, who's Ryan had brought back in the print, the uh, uh, public life of Jesus Christ. And Goodier has done many other great works. You talk about, yeah. you put all his works together, you got a couple inches of paper. Yeah, no, Goodier, Goodier was a very profound spiritual writer. And, you know, Luis de Puente was clearly his thought and his veneration, at least um, on an intellectual level, was never lost to some degree. Because you see, Ligori quotes him on multiple occasions. Father Lassance quotes him even in his writings on the religious life. And then Goodier obviously has, they republished some of his meditations and his treatise on prayer. And then Goodier writes a, a beautiful forward and introduction for that. Um, and I think, so there's the, the chapter before it goes into all of Luis de Puente's virtues. It talks about his works. And so he wrote six, seven, or, you know, in, in the range of eight or so works. Um, but what happened was Luis de Puente suffered immensely his entire life. Um, from bodily infirmities uh, for about 40 or 50 years. Um, I think 30 was like the, the years of intense, intense suffering. But he had always been kind of frail in constitution and had suffered greatly and sometimes would be even bedridden for months at a time. Um, when it says that bed was the last place he would want to be, you know, he, he'd want to serve God. But he would, he would accept all of these things and would never complain about any of his sufferings. And on many occasions, the Jesuits brought in physicians to see what was wrong with him, try to get him help. And the doctor says, I can't do anything. He's clearly been um, kept alive by a higher power. You know, God is, his, God is his immediate physician, which harkens back to God being his immediate father after the death of his own father. But what you see is, Luis de Puente begins to suffer incredibly where he can't even um, he can't even he can't even move from his bed and remains hours there. What's interesting is, you know, he's filled with this supernatural zeal and love as soon as it's time to hear confessions or say holy mass. So there'd be months at a time where he couldn't uh, move. 
but he almost never missed out on saying holy mass he would be filled with this supernatural strength he would get up he'd go say holy mass and then as soon as mass would be over as soon as his thanksgiving would be over he'd have to be carried back to his his room um but luis essentially had become so bodily infirmed he had a cataract in one eye actually and when he went to the doctor the doctor says uh, Luis, it seems like that you have a cataract in one eye, which means he was blind in one eye and could only use one eye. And Luis goes, a cataract, eh? Like, just has this kind of, you know, dismissive expression of like, yes, I've known this has been there for a while, and you're just now noticing it. Um, and he's like, I, I just deal with it anyway for the love of God, and I suffer for him. And so... It's just a pleasure, sir. <laughs> Yeah, it's 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 it, he's got this incredible ability to suffer for our Lord. That's clearly supernatural. I mean, to, to to be able to endure. It says at some at some points he he could only hold himself up on two crutches. You know, at some points he would go to hear confessions. He would he would be so infirm sometimes that all these people would come to him for confessions because he was so spiritually wise that he would have to just kneel on the side of his bed and people would have to come to the door of the his room. And he would hear confessions from from there, but he would just kneel for hours on the side of his bed, not being able to move anywhere else. And so where this is going is that eventually he had to resign his rectorships because he became the rector of two Jesuit colleges at different occasions, both at uh, Valladolid, where he was from, and at Villa Garcia. Um, and he was obviously a great superior. Um, and it talks a lot about and here's some some great stories about that. And he knew at every time what was going on in every corner of the house. And so at one point, one soul had come in in a fit of melancholy and despair. And Luis de Puente talks to him and had been worried about him. And at one point receives this kind of spiritual insight that he's in great danger and walks into the room. And the, 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 um, the, young, the young man in religion is about to take his life. And he has a knife in his hand. And Luis de Puente runs up to him and takes the knife out of his hand and, you know, orders Satan to leave and consoles him and very tenderly so. But I think in all these stories, it's beautiful because you're seeing the intimate love of Luis de Puente lived out in such a personal level that th 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 there's no kind of great jump you have to make for it to apply to yourself. I mean, just, just begin to love him. Just begin to love him and his life and his soul and, you know, his devotion and try to imitate it. You know, obviously to approximate degree, um, he, he lived to a specific degree of perfection that, that is very difficult to attain. And not, not all of us are totally ready for that yet, but it's like, um, obviously approximately, but, but begin to love him in that way. But where I'm going with this is that he's essentially had to resign his rectorships, his, um, his superiorities at certain Jesuit houses and colleges, and I mean, obviously, he doesn't want to be in any sort of high-ranking position, so this is kind of a relief to him, but but he wants to work in the vineyard for God, you know, as much as he can. And so he had never at this point thought about writing. Um, he had thought about it, but didn't think, you know, didn't think that was the distinct will of Almighty God to do such a thing. So now he's become infirm um, and has to kind of keep to his, his cell. Um and decides to to really commend the matter to God. That's another beautiful thing about his life is he 
I mean, so many times something bad in my life happens or something difficult or something I don't like, and I immediately go and talk to my friends about it as if they can solve it. It's like they can't solve anything, nor can they grant me the necessary peace. It's like, yes, maybe talking through them for some like practical advice or whatnot would help. But it's like really like I should be going to my room, getting down on my kneeler and like and wrestling with God. You know, that concept Luis Puente actually writes about it in one of his books. But the concept of wrestling with God in prayer, like something difficult happens that we're having a hard time dealing with, we should be going to God. Or if something great happens, we should be going to God. It's like Luis de Puente had no other thing on his heart than to go to God with everything. So he's commending this matter of whether he should begin spiritual writing. Um, and at the time, God infuses so much light into his soul and so much like radiant, you know, kind of uh, grace into his soul that like the room becomes illuminated with all of the light of God. And Luis de Puente like starts yelling like, enough, enough, enough. That's too much light, Lord. It's too much light. He was just so overwhelmed and taken over. And at that point, he realized that this was the grace confirming um, his his desire to take his spiritual wisdom and put it in writing form. So he originally begins with the book of his meditations in 1605. These were written in Spanish. Um, in what I've seen them in, in in our library at school is six volumes, but their 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 full title is Meditations on the Mysteries of the Holy Faith. And really, I consider them. I've read through some of them. I've prayed through some of them. They're very dense and they're very much written according to the style of what Luis de Puente considered Ignatian prayer, because. As, you know, Goodyear considered him to mystical theology, what Thomas Aquinas was to dogmatic theology. It's like Luis de Puente, in many ways, was the defining mind of Ignatian prayer. He was like the mystical contemplative of the Jesuits um, and articulating that theology post-Ignatius. Uh, and so he's using kind of this format of the memory, the intellect, and the will, recalling matters of the faith, going over them and ruminating over them and meditating upon them in the mind, and then making affections of the will and colloquies and resolutions and all this kind of stuff. And um, this was originally infirm, affirmed in Balthazar Alvarez, who was Teresa of Avila's great director, and Luis de Puente had much interaction with him. Um, and actually, both Teresa of Avila and Luis de Puente say that anything good in their soul can be attributed to, you know, the work of that holy man, uh, which is interesting because they both only knew him for such a short amount of time. Um, but anyway, you see this kind of, to get to the heights of contemplation, you have to go through this laboring in the vineyard is what Balthazar Alvarez calls it, um, which is interesting because at the time this, you have this problematic theology of quietism popping up. And quietism was something that Luis de Puente was very intense about fighting. Um, and quietism believed in this sense of pure contemplation that, you know, we, we, we attained the high heights of prayer. And Luis de Puente just saw it as idleness. He called it pernicious idleness. Like this is, this is ridiculous. And what's actually fascinating is in many ways, I see that amongst, um, in, in, in the, the Catholic world today kind of this like, oh, you don't need your books, you don't need your, 
rosaries or anything. It should all be, come from the heart. It should be this like kind of pure feeling from the heart of just just sit at God and just sit in front of God and look at Him. And it's like that's great for people in the higher mansions, but it's like I haven't attained nearly the the contemplative sanctity to do that. I haven't. We've, I haven't even worked long enough in the vineyard to receive that grace from God. I mean, it's a total. It's it's a misunderstanding really of how that divine action comes about. And Luis de Puente doesn't even experience this um, divine indwelling of God's specific action on the soul, which is what contemplation is, um, not meditation where you're ruminating upon mystery or mysteries of the faith and then kind of making acts of the will with it. Contemplation is God acting upon the soul more so than your action. Um, and so... Luis de Puente is very much battling this, and he doesn't start to converse familiarly with God until his tertianship in 1579 under Balthazar Alvarez. Um, Balthazar Alvarez, uh, well, we'll talk about the writings and then I'll tell that story. But he writes these meditations, and in many ways, these meditations are, in, in, in many lights, a mystical catechism of sorts on the mysteries of the faith. Um, obviously, they're meant to be read and prayed with, but they're almost just as edifying to read as like spiritual reading because the way he so systematically can parse out um, and understand mysteries of the faith, it's just it's just fantastic to read. It's beautiful to read. And he even supplies his own colloquies. But he also asserts that none of this stuff is essential. Um, obviously, if something is pressing on your heart or your mind, like meditate upon that. You don't have to follow this man. You know, it's 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 obviously a manual and kind of a structure that you're supposed to use, but always using your own prudence and discretion as to what you know the needs of your soul are. Um, but it's beautiful to read these passages. Like he has this on the Passion of Christ. It's like it's you know a 600-page volume just on the Passion of Christ, and the the first 50 pages are just expositions of the various sufferings at a general sense that Christ endured. And then that's for him to later go into the particular senses. It's like, I mean, the, just the, the depth of these meditations are fantastic. And Ferdinand II actually knew these passages by heart um, and would, would keep them in mind and have them on his heart throughout the day and whatnot. Then his second work, which is the one that Goodyear is commenting on, the spiritual guide was written in 1609. Um, Alexander VII was the Pope at the time, and it's believed that had Alexander VII lived a little longer, this is at least what the, what the author in the book proposes, he says that Alexander VII would have raised him to beatification, if not all the way to the holy altars. Um, that's how highly Alexander VII thought of Luis de Puente, at least according to the author of the book. And that's another interesting thing to note is like Luis de Ponte was a contemporary with Bellarmine. Um, and people were like, oh, well, Luis de Ponte is not a saint. Why does he matter? Why is he such a big deal? Well, it's like, well, I mean, Bellarmine wasn't a blessed until 1923. Um, and wasn't canonized until the 1930s. So it's like some of this stuff just because of all the tumult in the church over the past, you know, hundreds of years and all of the kind of politics of canonization, like these things get drug out. That's not to say that these people can't be prayed to as saints and loved as saints. And so I'm it's promoting like, Leo Dupont, and uh, he was told by yeah. Pius the Ninth to become the greatest miracle worker in the history of the church. That was a quote 
by Pius the Ninth going, Wait, anybody he's got nobody better than this guy. And he's just Well, that's what that's what Goodyear says in the introduction to the um to the book on prayer is that you know at the time of the Reformation and whatnot, and then following with all the revolution, it's like the ST was a great guarantee that this person's safe to read. But then Goodyear says, but but there's almost no one safer, at least in matters mystical, than than Luis de Puente in matters of prayer. And so that's where it gets to on the spiritual guide, because the spiritual guide was many different volumes. I think it was six different volumes in total. And this is actually right here, another book I have to return to the library. This is the first volume just on prayer. This was originally written in Spanish, and hardly any of these works have been translated into English. So only, and all of almost all of them are out of print, except for The Life is now back in print, which is very exciting. But the book on prayer was the only one translated into English. Um, and it's the first, it's the first treatise of this big six treatise set um on on the spiritual guide and alexander the seventh i mean viewed this as like a very high book and goodyear says there's no greater work that he's written than the spiritual guide this is his master work and so goodyear is actually very surprised that it was never translated into english in full um so that's the difficulty with reaching luis de puente is a lot of his stuff has just never been put into english uh, at least I think for we'll us, find no. a couple people to help out on this by the uh, time it's posted. I know. <laughs> no, yeah, we'd 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 have uh, especially with my own schemings. You know, we could we could have we could have quite the army of putting together Luis de Puente books. But anyway, uh, that was 1609. He also writes this other work called On Christian Perfection in Every State. Now, this is a really intriguing kind of work that obviously hasn't been translated into English. But he breaks down, at least from what the author proposes, he breaks down the different states of Christian life and breaks down essentially how to attain perfection in each of those states, which is what I was bringing up earlier with a sense of proximate perfection. Like we have to pursue perfection according to our own state in life and specific graces and whatnot, and what God's calling us to. Um, and and that, that that seems to be Luis de Puente's address to some of these um questions in his treatise on Christian perfection in every state. That's another major work of his. In 1622, this would have been two years before he died, he wrote a moral exposition. So just like Gregory the Great did on Job, he wrote one on the Canticle of Canticles or the Song of Songs, um, which that has to be a really beautiful um, uh commentary on the the canticles and that's that's written in latin that one was written in latin and to my knowledge it hasn't been translated but then he also writes two very interesting works that became important as well the life of balthazar alvarez so like we talked about earlier with the life of balthazar alvarez and then the life of um donna marina de escobar who was one of his um penitents who he was her confessor for 30 years or so. Um, and there's this story that after he died, she was going through some great sufferings herself because she lived 10 years past him, but he was writing her life as a contemporary of her, which is really interesting because you have this Jesuit priest writing a life of this um, holy lay virgin. 
because he found there was there would be so much spiritual profit in her her life that he was writing that along her living it um and so he wrote that over the span of 30 years and finished it kind of right before he died on his deathbed um but the life about the czar alvarez has been translated into english and i've, I've read that one it's two big volumes and it's just it's just incredible to read and what's interesting is these lives are written not only as you know historical historical accounts which i have read some lives of saints that are just really historically heavy and hard to get through like there's this one life of john of the cross that i tried to read that was difficult to get through because it was just so historically heavy people are trying to figure out who his professors might have been when he was in the university and it's like i don't need to know that i just need to read about the holiness of his life but the, this one, I mean, this life of Luis de Puente and the life about Sar Alvarez, and I'm assuming the life of Donna Marina, are all clearly spiritually oriented and are kind of written on treatises, you know, of, of virtue and whatnot. Um, so very edifying to read is spiritual reading. And then he writes the spiritual directory is the last work he wrote. And that was, he gives like instructions on confession, mass and prayer. And it's kind of like a exposition of those, those things and how to participate and grow in devotion in them. Um, and those are the works he wrote until the end of his life. And that's how he spent the, the back half of his life was, was in writing. Um, and so that's, that's, that's what he, he gave to the church. And unfortunately we just, a lot of people haven't seen these works, but I think, and they, they'd obviously be very beneficial and helpful. Some to college and where, where are you? What college? Where are you at? What? what I'm at Saint Saint Louis University where is in Saint Louis, Missouri. Missouri, some some library college in a college. It's a it's a books. Jesuit. It's a Jesuit. It's a Jesuit institution. You know, we we love we love all things. That's fantastic. Theology. Thanks, man, for doing all this. So, anybody wants the book, it's at Media Access Press. I'll have the link underneath in the show notes. Get it. Yeah, and I well, and I think I think just just one last thing before we we part is that the uh, I'll read for you the passage as he's as he passes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or maybe no, no, that'll 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 kill the ending. So I won't read that, but I will read. He was known for his great devotion to our Lord and Our Lady, particularly in the Most Holy Eucharist. It actually says that he lived probably more of his life in the presence of the Blessed Sacrament than anywhere else. Um, and so there is this beautiful passage that I think ties both of them together that we'll end on, that'll give a nice little edifying piece for the road that maybe will make people more interested in his life. But it talks about one day, says he, Luis de Puente, after mass, beseeching our blessed lady as my guide to infuse into my heart some feelings similar to those which she experienced in her communions. I was given to understand that every time she communicated, meaning Our Lady receiving Holy Communion, the same relish, sentiments, and gifts were renewed as had been given to her when she conceived her son by the operation of the Holy Ghost. And I understood that although Christ our Lord dwelt in the bosom of Mary alone, by choosing her for his mother, for which reason he had imparted to her so many and such exalted gifts, yet his divine majesty would nevertheless in this sacrament really enter into the breast of all the faithful, desirous that all should receive him in the same manner and proportionately with the same dispositions and the same welcome as his divine mother received him, since he was disposed to confer similar graces on them to those conferred on her. For the entrance of Jesus Christ into the breast of the communicant 
is but an imitation of his entrance into her pure womb, and he wishes everyone to participate in his gifts. He died the 16th of February, 1624. Indeed. 70 years of age. And that's, I mean, that's that's worth reading. I mean, it's just like you see his his practice of virtue over and over again throughout his life. And then you get to the point of his death and you're just overwhelmed with kind of kind of how holily this man died. And it's just it's just beautiful to read. But yeah, it's, it's like his his devotion to our Lord and our Lady, his practical understanding of spirit the spiritual ways um can just be very edifying to the soul. Now I got the new update cover. Now if you want to make it like an old school, I guess you can take the dust jacket off and you got the What does it look like? Yeah, what does it look like? I still haven't gotten a copy. Wow, yeah, it's no I'm I'll be excited to get my hands on the back. Oh, okay. Lovely. No, but yeah, it's 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 definitely a great work for for people to read and to read it not just like I said as a collection of historical facts about this man's life but to read it and to have devotion to him and to continue and foster that devotion you know and that we may imitate his virtues worthily and in the sight of God and Our Lady and that we make her closer to them because of it. Uh, awesome man uh, great job finding it uh, thanks be to God that you found it uh, but yeah, yeah no, check it out underneath in the show notes you'll have the link and I'm sure Colton will be uh, scouring the uh, library for some more. You might see more uh, books on uh, the uh, the Venerable Leo de Puente. And uh, if you're out there and you're at a college with a library, go use it. Use, use, just, use your university libraries, boys and girls. Yeah, start it can be very helpful. In Indeed, no. But my friend Michael and I are always scouring the stacks looking for random books. We like the really tiny ones that you can just stick in your pocket and you know, carry around with you everywhere. And then obviously we have to return them, which is always the sad part. Um, well, and then you find there's something good. You contact Ryan or another publishing company, you get it published, yeah. and then you come on the show and we'll, get you, and we'll put you on to talk about it. I know, it's a lot of fun. But no, and that's, you know, all thanks to you and to, to Ryan for, for you know, giving it the publicity and um, for Ryan for publishing it and, you know, giving Luis de Puente the devotion that can that be, can be, be very solitary and edifying to the souls of those who read it, but also, you know, kind of give him the honor of his life that he lived so holily. If you do what Colton did, find it, edit it, and get it out. Ryan will publish it. So you find something good and put some uh, help, help out on your end, uh, he'll get it out there. Yeah, we'll see. Anyway, but anyway, Colin, thank you so much, Steve. You're very welcome, man. Appreciate you. It's been a pleasure.